What's your name? My name is Johnny Dosco. What's your current job and how long have you held it? My current job is with the Sacramento River Cats, and I've been here since I've been with the River Cats since 2001. How many years have you broadcasted baseball? Since 1993, so this is my 27th year calling baseball, professional baseball. Approximately how many weddings have you officiated in your life? I've officiated 11 weddings in my life. Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, our guest is a very funny human being. If you work in baseball and your team is playing his team, you are instantly in a good mood because you know that as long as that series lasts, you're going to laugh. You're going to smile. You're going to have some deep thoughts. You're going to talk about life. You might end up making a bet about something ridiculous, but overall, life is better when Johnny Dosco is at the same ballpark as you. And today, this podcast will be better because Johnny Dosco is our guest on Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Scenes, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. That was quite the intro. It was, man. The, the pressure yeah. is on for you to be funny. Huge expectations. Yeah, exactly. I think that whole thing about, be, hey, be funny. You know, my friend's really funny. Hey, be funny. You know, Starting now, be right, funny. Right, go. All right, so before we dive into this, I want to make sure that whoever listens to this podcast understands some words that you might say during this podcast. Right. So, for example, what does it mean to kiffle? Kiffle means uh, keep it. Keep it Bleep and low. We don't say the, you know, we don't actually say the actual word, you know, the, yeah. the F word, but keep it blank and low. That's kiffle. What's the difference between a kiffle and a graveyard kiffle? Graveyard kiffle is when you just, uh, when I say kiffle, I mean really kiffle. Take it to your grave. Okay. So, so you, you don't even say this, even if you're on your deathbed, never, never release the information. Okay. Yeah, that's a graveyard kiffle. What does grindy mean? Uh, grindy means uh, you're, you're super annoyed. I think grindy is annoyed over a long period of time like a certain a certain thing grinds you early flights grind you those are grindy where chappy uh, is more like that that's quick chap you know you're 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 upset about it but it's not over a long period of time it's just a instant chap like a, a we talk about the birds a bird flap that that's chappy a bird flapping around my when did you first start using the word grindy i think i started using it about 18 years old 17 or 18 so you've had a long shelf life with the word grindy yes i have Indeed, I have. What is an RG? RG is a radio guy. And, uh, you know, RG is, uh, oh, that's the, uh, that's the opposing RG, the radio guy. They use that sometimes. Like, we have a name. You know, don't, let's call, don't call me an RG, you know. What does it mean to flap? To flap means, uh, I would say flap is like a long conversation. Let, let's sit down and flap. That, that's more like 30, 40, 50, you know, even an hour. Let's, uh, let's, let's have a long flap. Flap can't be five. So we're about to flap right now. Yes, we are. We're flapping. We're flapping yep, right yep, now. Yep. Okay, before we get into our full-scale flap, one of the things that I admire about you is that punctuation matters to you. I might say, Johnny, where are you at? Right. 
I don't like that because it ends a sentence in a preposition. I don't like it at all. And it's a, the, the old joke, though, about the, the guy at Harvard, right, when he goes up to the senior and says, uh, uh, he said, the, the senior says, uh, where is the, uh, where's the restaurant at? And the, and the freshman says, at, uh, at Harvard, we don't end our sentences in preposition. He says, okay, where's the restaurant at, asshole? You know, right? <laughs> but the, the great part is that if I end a sentence with a preposition, you get mad at me, but you also get mad at players when they don't speak properly. I do. I do. I want to help them. I mean, ending a sentence in a preposition. And people think the at thing is overrated. Like they say, you know what, now in the English language today, presently, we can, we can now say at. And I say, no, I don't care if it's. 1884 or 2026. No, you cannot in a sense in a preposition. So I do get on them for sure. All I have right. to. So we're going to get into some of the uh, more entertaining moments of your life, yeah. but I do want to uh, kind of set the stage because one of the other things that's, that's really fun is that especially at Sacramento at Rayleigh field, you walk into the press box and usually if someone walks in first person they see is going to be you. And almost like 99% of the time, the first person they hear is going to be you. Right. And you want to make them feel welcome. So you, you know everyone's name, and you might have something to say. And maybe it's sarcastic, maybe it's serious, maybe it's a combination. But welcoming people and making them feel included is very important to you. And I'm wondering why. That's a great question. I, I think, and it's, something, it's funny you say that because I kind of brought that to my daughter, too. When, when, uh, when I drop her off at school, the last thing I say to her every time is be inclusive. Include every. I can't stand it when people are ex- excluded. I just can't. I, I don't. Uh, it just there's. Some, Were you excluded as well, a kid? I think we all have had those feelings of exclusion. I think in all of our lives, in different times in our lives, and I, you know, I think I was. I think I made friends pretty early because of the fear of being excluded. So I had kind of the gift of making friendships pretty quickly. But I, I do think uh, you know when I see a player, we've seen players in the past, and they're going to lunch by themselves, and, and you, you see it when they're not when they're excluded, and it just breaks my heart. I, I can't stand it anybody when they're excluded, and I, it's uh, just a fear of mine for to have anybody be excluded. I even told my daughter that, like, if you see someone eating by themselves, go up to them and talk to them and and, uh, and uh, ex- include them. Get them to your group. And she's done that, which I'm proud of her. But I, I just, I, it's, my one fear is that just, uh, not so much me, but other people being excluded just bothers me. It bothers me a lot. What was your click in high school? Were you like with the, the popular kids, the nerds? Were no. you somewhere in the middle? Like, what was your click? I was kind of in the middle, yeah. We weren't quite the, we were, we weren't quite the nerds, but we certainly weren't the popular people. You know, it's, it's, I, we definitely weren't that. So I think we had, we had our own group, and we were, uh, I guess we were, you could call us a little nerdy. I'm sure we were a little nerdy into talking sports and all that, but uh, we definitely had our group. We had a group of about five or six of us, and we uh, kind of kept kept to ourselves. We, we you know, we, we did our thing, but we, uh, you know, we were just rip on each other and have a good time. We definitely weren't the popular group. I'll tell you that for sure. Okay, so if it's the start of your junior year in high school, and I'm the guidance counselor, and I say to a young Johnny Dowsko, what are you going to do with your life? What are you going to do with your life, Johnny? What are you going to do with your life? It's your junior year in high school. What was your answer? I said, I'm, I'm going to do something in sports. I'm going to do something in sports. I'm going to broadcast, some, do, do something. I, I actually had a goal of being a, a sports anchor on the, on the news when You'd I was younger. You'd be good at that. Yeah, I don't know. I think I, think I kind of struggle, man. I think I'd struggle. I think I make a ton of mistakes. Yeah, I, I don't know. I just I I remember sending a, a TV tape when I was in. Or, I did. I made a tape in Oregon. My buddy's brother was the news cat, news uh, or producer, director, or whatever in, in this um, in this station. I made a TV tape and I sent my stuff out to. 
Cape Girardeau, Missouri, and all these different places. And uh, I didn't really get any bites, so I went the other way. I went the radio route. But I, I had a dream being a, a, a ESPN Sports Center uh, anchor when I was when I was younger. I think you'd be a really good game show host. I wouldn't. I wouldn't mind that. You know, it's funny, Matty Vasgersian. I think. Matty, like, he got his job in baseball, and he got it so early, but I think he had made a decision that if he hadn't um, got a job in baseball, he did. He was looking into being game show host. I think he would have been brilliant at that. Yeah, yeah I really do. But, uh, yeah, I wouldn't have mind doing that. I think it would be fun. But instead you chose to go into play-by-play broadcasting. Yes. First job out of college was what? First job out of college was actually selling cable TV door to door. I was a door to door salesman. Yeah, a lot of lot of lot of doors in my face, slamming doors in my face. So, what was your pitch? Uh, God, I can't, I can't remember. We just talked about all the different different channels you're going to get, and uh, you know, I you're going to get thirty channels because this is the early '90s, right? Yeah, yeah. So you're going to get thirty channels. Yeah, exactly. Not just four. Can you imagine? Exactly. You're going to get thirty. 30 you believe that? <laughs> yeah, it that's was... unbelievable. What am I going to do with thirty channels? I, 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 that, right. That, then it was like a million, right? So, yeah, I, I loved it. I sold, it was in Glendora, California, and I sold cable door-to-door, and I, I was okay. I mean, I, but I wouldn't take no for an answer, but they, they slammed the door. I put, put my foot up. Like, hey, <laughs> really? not yet. Not done yet, you know? But, uh, yeah, so I don't know if you can get away with that now, but I, I was pretty hardcore. Oh, I would have. The money that I would pay to have you knock on my door and sell me cable TV right now. Yeah, I was fairly chatty. Yeah, I wouldn't really let him up for air. Okay. Um, In November of 2006, Sacramento Magazine profiled you. Oh, my goodness. It's amazing. I found it last night. Was it? Were you sure it wasn't November 02 or November 01? Was it 06? I thought it was 06. Dana Dunteman? How many times were you profiled by Sacramento Sacramento, Magazine? Just once. Just once? Yeah, I think it was early because I remember that picture. That picture's from like 01 or 02. That was early, yeah. Okay. Well, according to Dana Dunteman in Sacramento Magazine, whatever year it was, You worked in Charles City, Iowa, and yes. you broadcasted high school wrestling, girls softball, crab races, yes. and hog market reports. <laughs> yep, that's factual. That's a factual statement. We did the hog report, uh, steers are down, uh, whatever, you know, I, mean, I knew nothing about it, you know. Wait, so wait, give me a hog market I, report. I can't, I can't. I mean, the I, steers are up, hogs are down, I, 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 can't, I can't remember now. Can you but. give me a, um, how do you do a crab race? Well, we, uh, at Milan Supper Club, uh, they wanted us to do a crab race, so we sold it, and we did, a, there were these different crabs, I mean, I made up everything, this crab from Georgia, this crab from North, Northeastern Maine, and we actually, the crabs were on the on the table i broadcasted the crab, crab races live on the radio it was a hit my sister sells a tape of it by the way no way yes yes i'll oh. get you that tape <laughs> okay what is more difficult broadcasting a crab race or a game that is 16 to 2 when it's 40 degrees and there's seven people in the stands what is more difficult? You know, I've done so many 16-2 games. And obviously, when you're in A-ball, there aren't a lot of people in the stands, you know. But I think the crab race was all ad-lib, and I was making everything up. So I think the crab race is probably easier. And the crab race didn't last that long. So it, Like how long are we talking? Like 30 I, seconds? Yeah, I think no, it lasted about – I mean, the crabs weren't that fast. They were pretty slow. So I think it was more like two and a half minutes. Did you ever feel, okay, so way before we got into this, yeah. you know, you hear stories about like, oh, you know, you recreated a broadcast from the studio and you had to make, you know, you had to ad lib and you had to make, you know, make up stuff because you weren't sure, like, why, why is there not been a pitch? Did you feel in some ways that you're learning how to ad lib and just talk when you're, when you're broadcasting a crab race? Yes, it did help. All that stuff did. We did, uh, I mean, listen, we had a guy, Jim Hebel, and I'm, I'm not sure what, what happened to Jim Hebel, but he was a classic. He was the guy that, 
almost fired me for having 60 seconds of dead air when I went there as a DJ. I tried to be a DJ, and, he, and I had 60 seconds of dead air, and he said, you're going to either do play-by-play sports and sales, or you're, gonna, or you're leaving, or I'm firing you. So, uh, Why and, did you have 60 seconds of dead air? Because I couldn't figure out the board. I, I, could not, I know that's surprising. For, <laughs> no, you know, but, but boards are difficult. They are. When you're first learning them, they're, they're intimidating. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was, I, he actually called the back line of the studio, and he was screaming at me, and I was in a, in a panic, surprising, but I could not figure out the board for the life of me. I'm not even sure where I was going with that, but he, uh, yeah. Crab he was, races and, yeah. and working. What about wrestling? How much wrestling knowledge did you have when you were broadcasting high Not a wrestling? ton, and they don't even call it uh, play-by-play. They call it hold-by-hold. That was what it was, hold-by-hold, seriously. <laughs> seriously? But it, yeah, yeah. They had wrestling cheerleaders banging on the mats, but it was big. Iowa. Wrestling is huge in Iowa. Yes, so I didn't know a ton, but we got through it. I, I, I know where I was going with it. The, our old boss said, I said, I said, you'd broadcast a fireworks show if you could get paid on it. He goes, Dosco, I'd, I'd broadcast a funeral if we could get paid, you know? So, so he would do anything, you know, we'd, we'd sell anything. We did, uh, you know, as I said, the, the hog report, anything. But, you know, the crazy part is when we did sports back then, we did, we did play-by-play high school sports, you never signed a contract. It was always just a handshake. It was like $20 for the girls' game, $20 for the boys' game, uh, $35 for, for both. You get a little deal on that, but it's always a handshake. And I tell you, in all my time, I sold there for two years. I had one controversial issue, and I, I, said I shook the guy's hand. He said I didn't uh, for the deal, but everything else was just Midwest, word of mouth. It was, it was wonderful. When you were growing up, did you listen or watch professional wrestling? I did not. You did not? No. Okay, so that so you weren't thinking like belly-to-belly suplex uh-uh. as you were describing high school wrestling. <laughs> no, no. No one was going off the top rope. <laughs> no, no, no. It wasn't that. No, it's really wrestling's huge out there, as I know. you know, with Dan Gable and everything, with University of Iowa, the legend he was. But uh, If someone called you when we're done flapping yeah. and they said, Dosky, I got a high school wrestling event on your in the off-season, can you do it for me? A hundred percent I would do it. I would, I would study up and do it. I would love to, yeah. How'd you get your first job in minor league baseball? My first job I got, I was in Cresco, Iowa at the time, working for a group of radio stations with Jim Hebel and company. And then I landed a job in December of 92 with um, the Cedar Rapids Colonels. But here was the deal with that. They, they said, well, here's the deal. You're, you're hired, but we've never done radio before. So you're going to be the first one to do radio. You have to sell thirty thousand dollars worth of advertising, or we can't do it. So, so you have to agree that the season starts in early April. If you don't sell thirty thousand dollars worth by the time we get to April, you have to agree that you're done with the job. You're gone. Okay, so let's put this in perspective. Well, you're, this is ninety three. Yeah, thirty thousand dollars in nineteen ninety three. When you were selling cable TV door to door, yeah, had you, did you sell thirty thousand dollars worth of cable TV? I'm sure I was there a while, so I'm sure. I'm sure uh, you know but what? Did that, you do it in three months? <clears throat> Uh, no, not even close. Okay. No, the packages were a little bigger though. So I, I figured I had a shot and there were some big accounts out there, but it was not going well the first two months. And I, matter of fact, I think we had like 8,000 sold and with like a month to go. So I was calling my friends back home and say, I'm done. It was a good run, but I'm, I'm, I'm out. There's no way I can sell 22,000. And it was a miracle. It really was. We had some big accounts come in and we, we barely got, we got to like 31, two for the, for the, so we, we got it. And I was able to do the games. Do you feel like if you'd have gotten to say like 28, five, they would have said, all right, we're just not going to do Sundays or that's close enough. Right. Maybe, you know, maybe Josh, or do you, you know? think it was just a test? 
Did he ever tell you, like, okay, even if you you were going to broadcast the games no matter what, was that a test to put the pressure on you, or was it real? I think it was real. Like, I think Jack Rader was was uh, he was a non-BSer. He'd tell you straight up, I, I love that guy. And he, he said, uh, this is the deal. You can take this job, but if you don't sell this much advertising, you're going to have to agree to go. And I agreed with it. So, so you grew up in L.A., you're listening to Vince Scully, yeah. and... Did you have any idea that your ability to broadcast would be contingent on your ability to sell? Not at all. I had no idea that sales was even uh, a factor in minor league baseball. And that's, you know, that's why I tell young kids that want to get to A-ball, I say make sure you tell them you can sell first and then the play-by-play because they'll have a, hundreds of guys send their tapes to do play-by-play, but tell them you can sell. So, and I, you know, when I, I was telling you before, like when I started, I had no idea what, because he, he's, Jack said, why don't you put together a, in December, he goes, put together a proposal for us. Let me know what, what you think you deserve in pay and all that. And I had no idea. I had no idea. So I said, I actually said to him, okay, if I sell this amount, pay me 100000 If I sell this amount, pay me 150 this amount, 200 all the way up to 300000 So I didn't hear from him for a while, and I'm like, oh, okay. So then I, <laughs> then I, 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 I gave him a call. He's like, oh, hey, John, yeah, we, we, uh, we kind of, pulled you off the table because we, we can't afford that. You know, we can't afford You mean it. a minor league baseball team could not afford to pay a broadcaster right, right. $100,000? $300,000, believe it. I know. That, that's how dumb I was. I had no idea. Like, And he goes, so uh, I go, no, 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 no. I, I go, I'll work for anything. I, I didn't, I had no no idea. I had no idea that what the, what the is, is those, okay, so, because he liked my Phil Rizzuto interview. I, he was a Yankee fan. I didn't even know this. He was a Yankee fan. I did a 10-minute a interview with Phil Rizzuto. Where'd that, you meet Phil Rizzuto? I met him at the press box. Minnesota was playing the Yankees in Minnesota, Minneapolis, and I went up there for the game and got a press pass, and Phil was doing the play-by-play with the Scooter, was doing the play-by-play with the Yankees, so I did a sit-down with him, and I sent that tape, not even play-by-play, I sent that tape to Jack, yeah. who was a huge Yankee fan. He's like, oh, this is a good interview, so that's how I kind of got in with him. It was just lucky. What was it like broadcasting baseball before there was an internet? <laughs> you know, it's you just... You just found a way. You did your research. You know, you wrote down a bunch of stuff, and you just didn't even think about it. It's weird. Now I can't even imagine doing a game without a computer. But now, back then, with uh, without the internet, yeah. I mean, I didn't have a cell phone until '99. I didn't, you know. So, and you never had a computer. So it was just I don't know. You just you just did it. You did your research, and you did. You talked to coaches as we do. You talked yeah. to coaches and managers and players, and you just find a way. How long were you with the Cedar Rapids Colonels? Right, ninety-three, four, and five. And then you had a decision between Wilmington, Delaware, yep. and the High Desert Mavericks. Yes. Tell us about how you had to make this decision. Well, I was engaged to be married, and we were in the middle of a breakup. So it was like there were so many factors involved here. I had a job offer in Wilmington, a job offer in High Desert in Victorville, and or I could stay and try to figure out my situation. But it was the relationship was going downhill. So... I was sitting there in my GM's office, Jack Rader, and I'm just the whole world's on my shoulders, and I'm just bawling my eyes out. And he just puts his arms around he put his arm around me, I'll never forget it. And he said, Look, any decision that you make here is is the right decision. You can't make a wrong decision here. Whatever you decide, life's gonna work out. So I settled down, I said, Okay, that, that was nice. So I went to High Desert because I had friends and family out there. And um Yeah, turned out to be a good decision. What how would your life be different if you had gone to Delaware? I know it's impossible to know. It is. Um, I don't know. You know, I, who were they affiliated with back then? They Do were you remember? affiliated with, the, I think, the Royals. I think okay. the Royals. I mean, life would have been completely different. I mean, who knows where it would have gone from there? Who knows? I probably, you know, there was a lot of like uh, 
computer, you know, you got your own computer, and yeah, I was so intimidated by computers then that I probably would have been fired after a week. So I would have had to find something else. But uh, so that, I don't know. And I just think friends and family back in L.A., I wanted to do that, be, be, be closer to friends and family after being in Iowa for five years. But, yeah, I mean, obviously the road you take in your life, all the different places you go, it's going to be com- completely different on the decisions you make. How old were you when you were with the uh, High Desert Mavericks? I was 30 and 31. 30 and 31. When yeah. was the first time that you played a prank on a player? I would say, well, I, I got a lot of pranks played on me in 93, 4, and 5, you know, just with Cedar Rapids. So I kind of Like got, what? Like what would they do to you? Uh, I don't know. They did the three-man lift with me, you know, where they get you. You know, they act like you're, you're going to lift something, and then they spray you with shaving yeah. cream and all that. So I got crushed on that okay. just once, obviously. I, I can't, different, different pranks, but they, they get you pretty good. And when you're an A-ball and you're just starting out, uh, you're pretty vulnerable. You have no idea. You know, I was young, and I had, I had no idea what was going on. But some of the – I think I started playing pranks probably, I don't know, 97, 98. I was in high desert a little bit, and then in, uh, in Fresno I had a little fun. So I think most people around the PCL or who have known you recall that the, the roving instructor prank yeah. is probably the one that's most well-known. Explain what's the roving instructor prank. Well, you need other players involved. So you have another, uh, another player say to a player that doesn't know. Okay, so let's say I'm new to the team. Yeah. Okay, so I just joined the Rivercats yeah. today. I just got called up from AA Richmond. I'm with the Rivercats right. today. So say Mike Gerber would come up to you and say, oh, my goodness, we got this roving hitting guy in town. He is a, he's the worst. This guy's, this guy's tough. Just bear with him. Nod your head. You know, he doesn't really know what he's talking about, but you got you to deal with it. So I have to have a player set it up. You're only as good as the player that acts, you know, yeah. right there. So, uh, so we'll get him. Like, uh, I've done this in a while, but what they'll do is – get by the batting cage before BP, and I'll say, hey, I've been looking at your – first of all, uh, Joey Setzer, nice to see you. I've been looking at your swing, and, and uh, you're quick. You know, you're, you're, you're quick. He's like, okay, okay, just, just watch him. Okay, okay, and you, just, you keep it going. And then until till you, you can't handle it anymore, say, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but th- those are some. We got D. Brown. Uh, I remember D. Brown came to the Rivercats in 08, and Jeremy Brown uh, and, um, and Lou Merloni set it up. And Jeremy Brown with his thick southern accent. Oh, this Rover ro- ah, is the worst. He is the worst. Oh, just don't even listen to him. He's the worst. And Merloni's going, yeah, he, he's tough. So D. Brown, big D. Brown, the sweetest guy, the greatest human ever, right? Nice, no, there's no nicer person. And I said, D., I've been watching your swing a little bit. You, you, you're you're kind of, the way you're moving your hips, it just relax and just you know all these things and he's like you notice that i'm like yes he was so so we had him going for like 15 minutes and finally lou couldn't take it he's like i can't take it i can't take it that's a, so we, we were rolling but you know those kinds of things though honestly it's a long season josh as you know brings everybody together it's so much fun you know it brings everybody together i haven't done done as many cranks i did back in the uh, as many pranks as i did back in the day but uh it's just it's it, you see the team come together loosens everybody up it's fun to do well, you look the part, too, because you've got the standard roving attire, right? You've got the dress pants. You've got polo shirt, sunglasses. You look like a rover. Right. And you're tall enough. It's not like me. No one's going to believe that I'm a rover, like a skinny dude. But you're a tall dude. You know, you're fit. So you, you look the part. You can pull it off. Thanks, man. Thanks, man. It's, it, they're, always, they're always fun to do, man. It really is. It's a lot of fun. Did I hear something about they turned the tables on you with no more? They did. They did. I tried to get No More. No More was on a rehab with uh, Vegas, and he's Merloni's best friend. And I tried to, uh, <laughs> I tried to get him on, on a swing or something. He goes, Ah, no, 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 no. 
I, I know who you are. I know who you are. Got me. Got me. <laughs> there are some fun ones, man. It just, you know, it just, it's, as a, it's 140 games in 150 days. And, uh, you know, I mean, Steve Klein is, is the best. Steve Klein, our pitching coach, he, he has pranks all the time. He just, he's, he's hilarious. And we, we go back and forth. Me and him together, it's been, it's been a dream. It's fun to work with him. So a lot of different teams throughout the history of baseball, when they're in airports, they like to do the whole dollar on the ground, yeah. and it's tied to a string. Yeah. What's your most memorable dollar bill well, story? We had one, I think it was 03, because I remember Adam Melhuis, and I'll have to call Adam on this, but I think Adam Melhuis was you know, one of the leaders on our team. We did, we did one with, uh, or they were doing, I wasn't even involved, but I watched them do it, and they had this dollar bill on the ground and the dollar bill trick you know you put dollar bill on a string and people go to pick it up and then you pull it and everybody laughs whatever well they did it to the wrong guy you know three and they did it to the co-pilot by accident the and co-pilot the, of a plane that was flying us no not just any plane no he was flying us and he was he refused he goes we're not we're not going to fly that fly that team we're just not going to so tony d tony d had to, tony d francesco our manager at the time had to apologize to the uh to the pilots, and we had to have the whole team apologize to the pilots to, to get to get flown out. It was crazy. I mean, did, the guy did not have much of a sense of humor. That pilot, you know, even is that even allowed? Like, like, like probably on Southwest. I mean, what happens if Southwest Airlines CEO finds out that this co-pilot is is uh, would that be was he chapped or was he grinded by it? He was chapped, grinded, annoyed, everything. He was he was not having it. I can't imagine that yeah. that's uh, that that's even allowed. Like you have to fly. It's your job to fly a plane. Who yeah. Cares? They did, and they, nobody knew that it was. Nobody knew that it was. Uh, it was the pie. I mean, it was so. It was so innocent. It's such an innocent little trick, you know. And it's just fun little thing for these players. But he was not amused. Have you ever had a bad week of describing AAA baseball where you feared that you were going to get sit down to Double A? Uh, well, you know, actually, the first game I did in AAA in Salt Lake in '98. Um, I was working with John Carberry. I had the wrong batter for seven batters in a row, and I realized it. I'm like, "Wow, maybe I can't call AAA." I went from A-ball. It's not. It's not the same game. Obviously, it's not the same game. So uh, I don't know what happened, but I don't know if he wasn't listening at that particular time or what. But he didn't say anything, and I didn't say anything. So, but that was a time where I'm like, maybe I need to go get some work in in AA before I get to AAA. Work on my adjectives and working my adverbs. Have you ever told a player that you're about to get demoted? <laughs> yeah, I've done that before. I did that before. Do they believe you? I'm in all down. Well, players that don't know, and you come in and you're even. I did it to coaches too, where I just said, "Yeah, you know, I'm. It's not working. It's not working. They, they want me to get consistent reps at at uh, and just work on stuff in in double A. Like so your I'm, adjectives, so your I'm adverbs. Gone. What are you working on? Yeah, what, do you, what do you need to work on double A? You just come in with kind of teary eyes and say, "Yeah, I'm going down to." What does it mean to streep out? The streep out is when you like, I don't know, when you do like a little acting session with somebody, and Meryl Streep obviously is the standard. And when you when you streep out, you become uh, so involved in that character that you are the character. You know what I mean? Like if you like Sean Penn always said when he acts, he doesn't. You don't see Sean Penn the whole time. He's 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 that character. And Meryl Streep does. Meryl Streep falls in love with all of her. All of her co-stars, uh, because that's because she's Meryl Streep. So that's called streeping out. You streep out. So have you ever streeped out so much? Whether you're telling a player that you're getting demoted or a coach that that you that you cried. Have you ever cried because you got so streeped out in describing something that's going on? Uh, I'd lie if I say I hadn't. Yeah, I've cried before. You've yeah, cried. yeah, I've, I've done that yeah. before. Yeah, you get so involved in the thing and you're 
you know, you become that person that, yeah, you, yeah, I've cried. Could you really feel the pain of what that would be like to your career if you were sent down to double A? Yeah. I think, I, I think, you know, I, I think as we all do that, I think if, if as, uh, and I've never had any formal training in acting, but I think, uh, I think when you completely feel the part, you can, it, it becomes you and you, you can be, become overcome. You know, I think you'd be a good writer on Saturday Night Live. Really? Yeah. Did, have you ever thought about like sketch comedy or writing or anything like that? No, I haven't. But well, I, now I, that I, now that I bring it up, are you are do you feel like you're ready to switch careers? No, not yet. <laughs> okay. Maybe some of the fans want me to, but I but no, I, I think I'm I'm going to stick with this for a while. Once a year, you wear a very, very, very bright orange suit. Yes, I do. The Dumb and Dumber suit. Yes, I do. Why? Well, it was a it was a deal I made with a friend of mine who actually used to pitch for the Rivercats named Eric Hillius, and we were uh, he invited me to a 40th birthday party of his wife, and he said, "Listen, I'm going to fly you down here. We're going to this uh, we're going to this 40th birthday party of my wife, and you're gonna you're gonna wear you have to trust me. You're gonna wear a tux. You just have to trust me." I'm going to wear a tux, too, but you're going to wear a tux, okay? I said, okay. So we go in there, and, and uh, I see the tux because I'm going to go see if it fits, you know, and uh, I said, no, I'm not wearing the tux, man. He's like, you made a deal, you know, we're going to wear this tux. So I went in, I put the tux on, the bright white shoes, dumb and dumber tux, orange with the, with the white shoes, and he said, I'll tell you what, if you agree to wear that tux one home game every year, the rest of the time you're with the Rivercats, I will buy that tux for you and buy those shoes for you. And I said, okay. So I made a deal with Hilly. I, 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 I wore it to the to – the, uh, Did the, he wear the same – like? No, he didn't wear Dumb and Dumber. He wore like an, another a normal tux. Suit. Yeah, normal It was a tux. It was, it was pretty flashy, but it wasn't, it wasn't the, the, the blue, the Dumb and Dumber, right? Yeah, right. So, yeah, so every year, once a year, I, 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 I was going to do it. I was going to kind of snib out of it last year. I'm like, you know, I'm over this, you know. And then right about a week before the season ended – Stephen Okert said to me, he goes, uh, when are you wearing that orange tux? And I'm like, oh. He's like, oh, you were going to not do it, huh? Wow. So that's a good example for your, for your daughter. Say, welch in your bets. That's yeah. a really good good example. So he guilted me into doing it. So I'm like, yeah, I, I got to do it. I, I made the deal. What does it mean to be current? <laughs> oh, my goodness. You don't miss anything, man. Uh, I made a bet with Daniel Emmons back in... Um, in the spring of 2016, and there's a place in Scottsdale, there's a restaurant called Butters, and there was a fountain, and we were waiting about an hour, because it's such great food, you wait an hour to, to eat, and me and uh, Dan and Robert Barsani are sitting there, and uh, there, we had a, there was this, these coins you flip into the, flip into the, uh, the wishing well, in the wishing well, thank you. And he he said to me, "What will you give me?" Because there was this post. There was almost no way you could flip this coin into this into the wishing well. You had a post here. You had a post there. It, it would have to curl around. I'm like, he goes, "What will you give me if I flip this coin and it goes straight into the wishing well?" I go, "It's impossible. I'll give you a dollar a month the rest of the rest of my life. And I go the rest of your life. Dollar dollar a month through the rest of the rest of Daniel Emmons' life. Yes, rest of his life. He made it. <laughs> it was like, oh my, are you kidding me? He goes, you have a chance to tie. I wasn't close. So anyway." So it's a dollar a month. I pay him at the at the first of the month. I pay him one dollar, and if if I'm not current, 
he won't talk to me. Like, if, if it's the second of the month, I'm, why, why is he ignoring? Oh, I'm not current. Give him the dollar, and I'm fine. The problem is, I'm older than him, and I, I will most likely die before him. And I told my daughter, like, if I die, you still have to pay him a dollar a month for the rest of his life. She's like, really? So you made a bet, and I have to pay? I'm like, yeah. So you imagine that at the funeral? Like, you're going to be like, I'm so sorry about uh, your dad. Uh, uh, can I get that dollar? <laughs> And hold, how old is your daughter right now? She's 13. She's 13. So she what, – what are the – like, have you ever thought, what if I just give you, like, $33 right now, which would be, like, the next close to three years? The point of the bet is $1 at the first, first of the month. That's the point of the what bet. What if you're on the road? Well, then I, I pay him when I get back or I pay him – you know, he doesn't like – I can't pay him before. I've tried to pay the guy before I leave on the road. He won't do it. He just won't do it. So I have to do it. And I, I it, So if we ever move on from different jobs, I'll have to send the dollar. But it's – I mean, I'm – That would be a grind. Yes. That would be a chap. Yeah, because – yeah, it would be a grind because it's a long – yeah, it w- yeah. would be. It would be pretty grindy, yeah. A dollar a month. For the rest of his life. I, I give you respect, though, because – you are you're current with him right now. Yeah, I'm, right? Not a, I'm not a slow pay. I'm right. Paying, yeah. Yeah. You're current with him right yeah. now, and you honor your bets. Yeah, I do. I do. So yeah. So I, I my next payment is June first. I'm gonna getting ready to pay that dollar coming up. So are are there any other like are there like a scout or a rover or like someone who might come up to you one day and be like, you owe me that steak dinner. Like, how many other potential payments might I, you or your daughter be on the on the hook well, for? Well, we're obviously not – obviously, we can't bet in baseball. So, obviously, monetarily, uh, you know, there wouldn't be bets. But there could be steak dinners out there. There possibly could be steak dinners out there that I owe um, that, uh, that are up there. I'm sure I have uh, – you know, there have been certain bets in the past, I'm sure, that, uh, that uh, I would owe on. But I'd like to keep those kind of private. So we would kiffle that? Yeah, we'll kiffle it. We'll kiffle that. Yeah. All right. Do we have to kiffle the bobble nose? No. Bobble nose. They're, bobble heads are a big part of sports. Yep. You had a bobble nose. I did. I did. I had a bobble nose. Whose idea was the bobble nose? The bobble nose was uh, a front office person back in the day. I'm not even sure exactly who it was, but there was a someone in marketing. Might have been... I can't even remember. It was back in the day, though. It was back in 2011 or 2012, and someone came up with the idea, and I thought it was brilliant. Instead of doing a bobblehead, they thought they'd do a bobble nose to honor my nose, you know? And, and you know, my it's funny. My daughter didn't really understand it. She thought they were making fun of me, which they were, but it's it's part of it. And she doesn't really understand it. She goes, why are they making fun of you with that nose? I'm like, they're honoring the nose. They're honoring the nose. They did, they did a bobble nose where... The head doesn't bobble, the nose bobbles. So as as mine, like I always think of my nose as like kind of like a doorstop, you know, it's just like goes you know, it's just like and that's and that's what that nose did, you know, so it's classic. And it, it looks I have one that's right yeah. behind us. Yeah. And it looks a lot I mean just it's very it looks a lot like me. Looks a lot it's like It's a really me. good one. Yeah, it is. So so anyway, the bobble nose it's how long did it take in your life, in all seriousness, before you became comfortable laughing at your own nose? I think, you know, I, I had I think my nose was probably even bigger in high school because my face was smaller. So your nose, nose and ears never stopped growing, which wasn't the best news I got one day, right? <laughs> right. You get that news and yeah. you're like, oh, it's not, not great. Um, but I've been comfortable, I think, since probably college when I got probably my freshman, sophomore year when guys were like, wow, you got, you got a really, really big nose, you know? And then you finally start to get comfortable. You're, you're comfortable with it because that's what you got. 
You know what I mean? Like, and well, you're more than comfortable with it because you do this to me, so I know you do this to others where you'll call me, you'll FaceTime me, and you'll intentionally put your phone right next to the nose so that all I see is the nose. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I love that. I love that. So all you see is nose, and I'm just like talking to you, but you're, you're seeing my nose. My nose is a part of me, and I want you to see that, you know, <laughs> a big part of me. Speaking of uh, FaceTiming and videos, yeah. when was the first time that you recorded a message to somebody where it's a it's a selfie video and when was the first time you send a video to somebody as soon as i understood how to do it and as soon as i understood wow you know i would we send pictures and stuff but then when i realized wow you can do videos that's really cool because then you can really tell the person how you're feeling they, they see uh you know your emotions how you're saying it i, I think i think video messages are so personable and so awesome I, I love sending video messages to people i care about it's it's the greatest it is. I, I can tell you, then, and there's no, numerous people here in Albuquerque who have received them, and it really does warm their heart. I'm not being sarcastic. Yeah. Like, it really does. Yeah. Per week, what would you say you average? How many videos do you send per week You on know average? what? Not as many anymore. I, I've been bad. Okay, at your peak. At my peak? Like, say, three years ago. I don't know. I would say a, a bunch, man. I mean, I, I, I'd say More than a, one a day? Yeah, for sure. For like, sure. five a day? Maybe five a day. Yeah, different people, sure. You know, I'd, I'd send it to, I mean, even when I'm on, I send videos to my wife all the time from, from the road just to say hello and everything. Yeah. Yeah. But not only do you send videos to people who are not in the same city as you, but you have sent me a video while you were sitting three feet away from me. I have. <laughs> <laughs> like, you'll be, <laughs> well, I'll never forget the first time I'm at Rayleigh Field and Johnny's in the booth right next to me. He's five feet away from me. But instead of walking out of his booth and walking the 12 steps into mine, instead he sends me a video message. And so I'm getting ready to go on the air, and I see something. I'm like, why is Johnny sending me a video? He's right next to me, but he just sent me a video. Basically, I'm an idiot. I don't, I don't know. I, I, you know. My buddy always says, you're a moron. And I, I don't know. I have no idea why. I just do it. That's awesome, though. Why do people wear name tags at work? I think so. You can say their name. I think you'd say their name. And I do that all the time. Where, where I am, if I see someone name tag, I'm going to say their name. And if I like see, that's the point of wearing if, a name tag. If I see Robert, I say Bobby. If I see Elizabeth, I say Betsy. If I see, you know, I'll always whatever it is, I'll <laughs> you always say Betsy. yeah, I'll always because that's the Betsy's a nickname for Elizabeth. So whatever it is, I'll always do the nickname. I'll always do the nickname, and it throws them off sometimes. And, and I, I like, I don't know, I like testing the human spirit. I like to see people's reaction. If I'm even if I'm by myself and I, I'm at a, a, a store that has it, like a a Best Buy or something. I see Bill, William. What's going on? And they're they're always kind of thrown a little bit for for, for a loop. And my daughter's starting to get into that too. Like at first she was like she tried to date with me, and she goes, "Hi, Jeremy," and she laughed and <laughs> laughed and ran away. But but now she's like more comfortable doing it. So I'm I'm glad I'm. Uh, Have you ever home. had a job where you were wearing a name tag? You know what? I probably when I worked at Kenny Shoes back in the day. Uh, I probably you worked wore, at Kenny Shoes. I did back in the day. That's when I first started. Like selling. in high school or college? Yeah, it was right, right outside of right at my, after my my first summer after college. Kenny I, uh, Shoes. First summer after after high school. First summer after high school. Kenny Shoes. I sold shoes. Remember Kenny Shoes? I do then? remember Kenny Shoes. Yeah. I got some cleats from Kenny Shoes so I could play little league baseball in Pleasanton. Yeah, that that was uh, that was one of the first jobs I, I had out of out of high school. It was great. Did anyone ever do the name tag thing to you? No, they never did. I just love it. I, I, I love it. I, I didn't get it from Seinfeld. I was doing it way before they had the Seinfeld episode on it. When did you become Johnny? 
When were you John? You know what? Good question. When I was, in 98, I was, I was John all the way up until 98. I was 30, 31 years old. So when you were doing play-by-play of wrestling and crab races, yep. you were John. You and, were John Dawson. Yeah, and when I was in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, for the Cedar Rapids Curdles, I was John. And then when I was in High Desert, I was John. Then when I got to Fresno in 98, I got the, the job at AAA. At first, I got the two job, and then the, then the number one guy, Paul Swearingen, said he had too much other stuff going on. So I got the number one job in Fresno. And... John Carbray, um, uh, who was my boss at the time, said, look, Johnny Dosco has a way better ring to it. You're going to be Johnny Dosco. You, you got this job. You're going to be, basically told me, you're going to be Johnny Dosco. And John Dosco doesn't, doesn't work. So, John, so I started becoming Johnny Dosco, and I, I, I loved it. Now I'm Johnny on everything. Now you're Johnny D. Yeah, it's weird. No, Were you the, ever John D? <laughs> no, never John D. The weird part about it, like, normally when you're a kid, you have the Johnny, little Johnny, yeah. you know, everything. I did the opposite way. I was 32 or 31, Johnny. Right Who now. still calls you John? Uh, Stephen Vogt calls me John. Uh, Zach Bash calls me John. Parents? Uh, parents, parents, call parents still call me John. Yep. No, my mom actually started calling me Johnny. My dad calls me John. What did your parents think when suddenly you're now Johnny? <laughs> it's kind of sure they like this guy's. Uh, I, I don't know. They probably put their hands up. We give up. You know, we give up. Yeah. I yeah. like John. Didn't think Johnny has a better ring? It's way better yeah, ring. Yeah, it's not even close, right? I, like, yeah. I can't fathom what it would be like to call you John. Yeah. Unless I'm just making fun of you. Right. Way too formal, right? John. Yeah. Like, what, what's, a, what's another version of John or Johnny? Jonathan? Yeah. Jonathan? Jonathan Doskow yeah. here. Welcome to Rayleigh Field. Like, when someone says John, I think they're mad at me. Like, John. You know, it's, it's, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't fit. Okay. You remember watching... Uh, Roy Firestone, what they call it, up close? Sure. Yeah. All right. So we're going to do a little Roy Firestone. Okay. I'm going to give you either the name of a player or the name of a city, and you're going to tell me what comes to mind. Okay. And what, is there a sign in case you have to, like, kiffle it? Is it, Are you going to give me, like, a sign or whatever? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you the kiffle sign. Okay. Yeah. What is the kiffle sign? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> he just flipped his nose. Yeah. Tucson, Arizona. Good. I, one, I have to do a one word, or can I just no, 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 no. Okay. Just whatever. Just tell me a story. Tell me what um, comes to mind. However many words. If okay. you want, it can be a, okay. a million. Did not like doing games there uh, because you're so far removed. But love the city and great sushi there. In an upset, there was great sushi. <laughs> that is an upset. Yeah, that's like a 15 seat up setting and number two seat. No upset. doubt, complete, absolutely. I mean that's that's Villanova Georgetown. That's crazy. Yeah, that that is a huge upset. But it, it was great sushi in Tucson. I also remember the in Tucson we were always in hotels that had suites. Everybody had a suite. Oh, that's and, nice. Yeah, so it was nice. I loved going to Tucson. Just the games, you were so far removed. The crowds were light. I, I think I think I never got a chance to experience High Corbett, which I think I would have enjoyed it mm-hmm. better. But Tucson Electric Park, um, it just uh, wasn't my favorite place to broadcast from. Chris Spire. Chris Spire, pull up. Uh, we we worked out we worked out together and he, he was he was he's awful. a workout maniac workout machine and, and when we went to work out together he would do like twenty five thirty pull ups and he goes make sure do your pull up singular singular do your pull up yeah get it done you know? where, where were you with Chris what like where like what city where where uh, we were high desert was it high he desert was he the was manager the manager in ninety seven we had that. That awesome team when the when the when the uh, Arizona Diamondbacks didn't have a double A or triple A team, so we were loaded. We crushed. Did that you have unit. Travis Lee on that team? Yes, I went to school with Travis Lee. Travis Lee. That's yeah. when he was like the man. Yes, yeah. He, I mean, everybody thought he was going to be 
a superstar. And it, yeah, we had Travis Lee, we had Jason Goligoski, Mike Stoner, Stanton Cameron, we had Donnie Peters, we had Zankanero, we had Dave Tuttle. We had our, our team was loaded for a, for a single A team. We were absolutely loaded. Then we went to playoffs, swept everybody, and uh, and the '97 team won all. But I enjoyed that year with Chris Spire so much. He was so funny. Really enjoyed him. Rick Rodriguez. Rick Rodriguez. Uh, Ricky Rod. He's he, just. Uh, like, like first, explain Ricky Rod. He's been the pitching coach for the Ace AAA affiliate forever. Yeah, forever, he has. He went and did a, a couple of years in the big leagues and a couple of years, I think, in Stockton. But for the most part, he's been the Ace AAA pitching coach at Sacramento, at yeah. Nashville, yeah. and now at Las Vegas. I just think Ricky Rod. I think cool. He's so cool. He's just so he's so much. He's so mel- mellow, chill, and I another just, dude who's jacked. Has he, there ever been a pitching coach more jacked than Ricky no, Rod? He's ripped. Guy is guy is jacked. Yeah, he for sure, and he, he's just. He's got. I had so many inside jokes with him. I, I just love that guy. Yeah, he's great. Was there something about a plane with him, or is that somebody else? Oh yes, May seventh, two thousand seven. <laughs> what what happened on May seventh, oh two thousand seven? May seventh, two thousand seven was a flight. We actually we were going Denver to Omaha because we connecting flight to Omaha, and it was um, basically eight minutes of terror. The 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 flight attendant or the the. Captain said, ladies and gentlemen, Captain speaking, um, we're going to have eight minutes and it's going to be really, really rough. Flight attendants, take your seats immediately. And it, the, the, the stern, the, the, way he ta- the way he said it was eerie. It wasn't, uh, he said it so factually, it wasn't like, oh, we could hit some bumps. It's like, brace yourself. Like, and, and so we're okay. Here we go. So Brian McCarr, we had a, I was in the aisle. You know, I, had a, I had nobody in the middle seat and he was on, uh, Brian McCarr was on the uh, window and we started going up and down a little bit, and it, it got to a point where we were going so far down so fast that you hear, whoa, but it wasn't just normal turbulence. And you saw, I saw the flight attendant's eyes, and they were, they were just so wide. They were sprinting to get to their seats, and it was just going down. I mean, every single time we had a, I, I was told Brian, I said, see you, Bob. It was a great run. I said, that was, that was, that was a great run. We had a, and I saw Rick Rod. Rick Rod said he grabbed the, the phone. There were, at that time, there were phones in the back of the yeah. – back of the seats he was calling his his wife to say goodbye like that's how bad it was like it was it was it was awful it was eight minutes of of terror it was did anyone throw up a lot of people threw up really the mask came down a little you know the is that the closest to death you think you've been realistically yeah, i think so i i mean I, who knows the pilots might say they had it the whole time but it, it was i i don't know man it was it was everybody's pretty shaken up when they got off that plane walt said walt horn athletic trainer at the time said in 30 years of flying he's never experienced anything like that so i it was it was it was pretty bad you know one of the things that i have like the biggest nightmare about is if something like that happens like let's say that the person next to me throws up yeah. it's going to make me throw up like the smell or, yeah. or or like if it happens to me like that that little bag it's not going to catch it all. Yeah. And, even, and if so, then what do I do with this bag, right? And <laughs> that's, like, your, that's your biggest fear. <laughs> well, that's my biggest airplane-related yeah, fear. Yeah. I actually don't fear d- dying in the plane. Yeah. I fear that everyone on the plane starts vomiting, and that induces more yeah. vomiting. Like the, um, like the, like the story from the, the pie-eating uh, from the movie, um, uh, from the 80s movie. Um, help me out here. Um, the song Stand By Me. Okay. Remember okay. the story? Yeah, yeah. Like everyone just starts puking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's my, that's my fear on a plane really? is that everyone starts puking. And then you then you will automatically yes. puke. <laughs> yes. right. Like if we die, like whatever. Like it was a good run. Like I just said. don't want to puke. But yeah, no, it was. I'm telling you, man. I mean, it, people hear it, they say, "Oh yeah, you had a little turbulence." No, it was not a little turbulence. It was it was it was unbelievable. And uh, so I think anybody who flies a lot has that kind of experience. But that was unique in that 
to watch the flight attendants and watch their eyes that were three inches wide and just see everybody freaking out and just thinking. I was telling Brian McCarn every time I said, listen, it was a heck of a run. You know, it was a great run. But uh, see you later. Take care. Well, you're still running. All right, let's find a a happier topic. What about – I'm just going to throw some random names from the Oakland A's teams of the early 2000s that were at AAA Sacramento. Right. Ron Flores. Ron Flores, uh, yeah. Uh, left-hander, I think maybe the most appearances for, uh, for uh, I think most appearances in Rivercats history. He is now a minister in Las Vegas. No way. Yes, he's a minister in Las Vegas um, for this church, and he's, uh, yeah, he's just a great guy. I remember him so, so well. Born August 9th. 1979. You remember um, that? Yes. How August, do you remember that? I don't know. I don't know. Some of these things are really... I'm a little bit like Dougie and Doug Greenwald, who's so brilliant with birthdays. I'm a little bit like him, just with just remembering those those birthdays. We go back and forth on that. So I remember when Ron was with AAA, he got called up briefly uh, a couple of times to the major leagues, and that's when I was covering the A's for Tribune. And I remember um, saying to like Ron, like, hey... You know, is there a guy like at AAA every year who, like, as soon as someone know, soon as someone gets hurt in the major leagues, and that means that someone's going to be called up? And this was before Twitter. I said, you know, is is there somebody like that on every team? You know, I'm just like BSing with him. And he goes, Oh yeah, for sure. And I'm like, Really? He's like, Yeah, that's me. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, Yeah, that's me. He's like, Yeah. He's like, I'm the first one to know about every injury. And I'm like, Hey, you're going up. I'm like, What do you mean? Like, just got Kotze just got hurt. You know, uh, you know, Hudson bowled an oblique. You know, like, you're like growing up. <laughs> that's awesome. He's he was classic man. He had so many great uh, great one liners. Yeah, you remember? I miss Ron. Bakersfield, California. You know what? It's going to sound crazy. It's going to sound nuts, but besides the sun delays that we had, remember games yep. would start. At, you don't know. You can't tell the audience what when the you can't tell the radio audience when the game's going to start because it depends on the sun, right? They built it backwards, but it's another place that I was shocked that there was good sushi, and there was another I, I, upset. Whoa, that's beyond Villanova, Georgetown, Baker. You know, so yeah, I was uh, yeah, good sushi there. But I, I always enjoyed going that's to that's Santa Clara over Arizona. That is, that is. Nice analogy there. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed going to Bakersfield though. Bakersfield wasn't overnight. You know, the commuters. I wasn't. You know, we commuted to Rancho. We were in high desert. We commuted to uh, uh, San Bernardino, Lancaster, San Bernardino. So some of the northern Cal, central Cal, were fun to fun to go to. Portland, Oregon. Portland, Oregon. I think a mother's bistro, the best breakfast place. And I know some people are going to listen and say, "Oh, it's over overrated." No, it's not overrated. It's the best breakfast place. I still believe that. Uh, this side of the Mississippi, and uh, so every time Portland or Portland was so much fun too because we had, you know, I love I love doing games there. There were a lot of three two games, a lot of four three games, a lot of two one games. Uh, pitcher friendly, you can walk everywhere there. You take the train down, whatever you wanted to do. It just uh, Portland was an awesome city. I wish it was still in the Coast League. I, I just love going there. Great places to eat. Uh, but Mother's, obviously, going to Mother's for breakfast, um, and Lou Merloni can attest to that. It, it's it's the greatest. Uh, sometimes I go there three or four for breakfast. Really? Yeah. You'd yeah. go to the same place every day? Yep, because it's Mother's. Yeah. Okay, I had Lou Merloni down to yeah. ask you about, so I need another Lou Merloni story that has nothing to do with Portland, Oregon. Uh... We already got two Lerboni references because we got the yeah. Nomar story and Portland, Oregon. That's right. Uh, let's you got to have a third one. Well, I think Lou, I messed with Lou for like a, a 20 minutes on a plane once. Or it may have, been, may have been a half hour, maybe a little longer when I just having fun with a, there was this guy who was pretty chatty, guy in the middle seat. Lou was on the window. I was on the aisle. And he was chatty, chatty about himself for, for a long time. And then he said, 
what do you guys do? And I just thought I'd mix it up, and I said, we're in microchips. You know? Microchips. Microchips. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> and I go, and he's the president. And I pointed right at Lou. So he, this guy was peppering Lou with questions. <laughs> peppering. And Lou's like, yeah, yeah. Like looking at me like, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> but yeah, so that was, yeah, that was, that was an adventure. We finally told him at the end we're kidding or whatever. But, but it was, yeah, it was, uh, it, he was, at the time, Lou was... Not, not pleased with me. How long do you think, if the tables had been reversed, you could have continued to streep out about being the president of a microchips company? The entire time. You could keep going. Yeah, the entire time. I think I could do that. Yeah. Yeah. That was, oh, that was 08, too. I remember that was, yeah. We had, no, 07. We had Lou in 07. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that was, that was fun. I'll never forget that. Omaha, Nebraska. Not Papillion, Nebraska. But Omaha, uh, Rosenblatt. Well, anytime you know Mark Nasser is one of my favorite people in the world. So anytime you get a chance to go to Omaha and hang out with him, it's awesome. Uh, but Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, oh, man, I just like doing games at Rosenblatt and just love the places to eat there and going downtown. And I, I love Omaha. Big, big fan of Omaha. Have you noticed a trend with all the cities that I've that I've uh, mentioned yet? There has been a theme. Hmm. I said Portland. Bakersfield, Tucson, Omaha. Uh, gosh, man, I'm slow. What do you got? They don't have teams anymore. Oh, it kills you, too. Well, Omaha, Papillion. Oh, yeah. They, yeah, no, that's, no why, that's yeah, why I, I said you. Omaha, I not yeah. Papillion. I got you. Yeah. yeah that, no, that was the theme, is I that know. cities that no longer have minor league baseball. Doesn't it blow you away? I mean, we talked about today that, that Tim Haggerty, our good friend Hags, is three different cities with the same same. Uh, Portland, Parent Club. Yep. Portland to Tucson yep. to El Paso, Incredible. all with the Padres affiliate, yep. and he did Double A of the Padres Double A team. Yeah, he's a beast. Adam Pyatt. Adam Pyatt. Uh, Pyatt was so. Pyatt. They said could have been on the phone book in Midland. He was so legendary there. He was such a legend there. Really? They said you put him on the phone book. He was an absolute. Beast there, and uh, so he, I only had I only had Pyatt for for a little while. I had him in 01 and a little bit in 02, but he was uh, up and coming player. Yeah, he just decided to to quit all of a sudden. He just decided to uh, to stop playing. I think when he was young, he was like 26 years old. Um, but uh, yeah, Pyatt was a good dude. I, I'm trying to think if I have any Adam Pyatt stories, but um, he was always uh, you know one thing I like about Adam Pyatt is he was you could always talk about the history of the game, and he was always uh, interested in the history of baseball. He was always fun to talk to about baseball because it wasn't just surface stuff. He got you got deep with him. Okay. Yeah. I respect that. All right. I don't know if you're going to follow why I bring up this name, but we're about to find out. Tabitha Soren. Tabitha Soren is the wife of of Mr. Lewis who wrote Moneyball, right? Correct. And she, you know, you know more about her than I do. But she was on MTV for a yeah. while, right? Yeah, she was okay. the big news correspondent. Yeah, yeah. Choose, or, cho- choose or lose. They had like that. Like Bill Clinton went on yeah. and did like a like a forum with like college students. And yeah. She uh, moderated it, and yeah. then she would go into Sacramento and do like, and she became like this really successful photographer. Yeah. And so didn't she follow around like all the Moneyball guys? I think she did. This is my jumping yeah. off point in case you yeah. haven't figured it out. To talk yeah. about Moneyball. Yeah, 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 and it's uh, we had all those guys. We had Jeremy Brown and all those guys, uh, and uh, yeah, it was uh, who was the who was the kid that uh, that was that the A's got from Detroit? Who was that? Jeremy Jeremy Bonderman. Jeremy Bonderman. Yeah, Bonderman. He was never he was never an A, right? It was the one that got away or something. I don't, I don't know. I don't know why I thought he's he was the one that they wanted to draft, but 
No, they did draft him. Yeah. And like a, a chair got thrown because they like were that. mad, and then he got traded. Like the first day that they could trade him, huh. like a year later, he got traded. And then we came pretty successful with the Tigers. Yeah, he did. He did. I don't know why that name came up, but I remember. Uh, yeah, that was an interesting time, the Moneyball time. It was great. What else? What else? Tell me more about what made that interesting. Just the book and those guys, and now they're coming up through the minor leagues, and and and, and they're all around you. On those yeah, it teams. was. Michael Lewis was around, but I, I just uh, I don't know. The A's were. It was so A's in the early two thousands. That was that was a blast covering those guys, Burnsy and all those guys. I mean, you went to the playoffs up. every year. Every year we went to the playoffs uh, from two thousand really two thousand one zero one zero three zero four. Uh, 05, 07, 08, 09, 2010. I think it was a period of like 9 out of 10 years went to the playoffs. It was a great run. And won, won the uh, PCL championship in 03, 04, 07, 08, and the, and the AAA championship 07, 08. So that was a pretty good run. Really good run. I mean, you had Bobby Crosby. You had Nick Swisher. Yeah. You had Dan Johnson. Dan Johnson. Graham, Graham Kuntz. Kuntz. Absolutely. Some legends. I mean, Jose Ortiz, before I got there in 2000, uh, Burns, obviously, uh, some some just some legendary. That team in two thousand was incredible. Before I got there, that was that was a really good team, and our O one team was really good. Uh, it's funny the O three team was loaded with David McCarty and Adam Melhus and McMillan and all those guys, um, but the O four team, I think Tony did Tony did a good job with that team. I didn't think we were favored to win it, and we won the whole thing in O four as well. So your first year in Sacramento was O one, yes, and that was the second year of the River Kings, yes. right? Okay, so at that time. Holy cow, the attendance. You guys were averaging what, oh, like 10,000, 11,000 yeah, a game? Packed, packed. Especially weekends packed every day, you know. So, you know, you got to give them credit. They're still, they're still packing them in on the weekends especially. So, you got to – I mean, it's, it's easy when you first – I think when you first get to a town that's hungry for it, mm-hmm. you know, the first three or four years, the honeymoon period. But it's how the ticket people do, how they sell it after that is, is what is, – does it – you know, does through the test of time are you able to contain – if you're able to maintain it? And that's been – been pretty good for the Rivercats through the years. Ken Priest. Ken Priest. He got me my uh, my uh, my my only time in the big leagues. He hired me to do thirty four uh, major league games with the A's back in two thousand. How did he tell you? Oh, you know, he was funny. We um, I knew something was up because I was talking to Ken Korak and he was acting he was acting a little strange on the bench and kind of smiling at me. So I'm like, something's going on here. And then Priest like, we need to set up a time where we can talk. So I go, all right. So he goes, I go, now it's fine. He's like, okay. So I followed him into the A's uh, spring training clubhouse, and we were actually in um, Bob Melvin's office at the time. Bob Melvin was on the field, and it was uh, it was me and Ken Priest, and then Billy Billy Bean walked in for a little bit. And uh, I think, I can't remember if Billy was there right after he told me or before he told me, or I think it was after he told me. But when Priest told me that I was going to do some games with Korak um, out with knee replacement, uh, I, w- I was like, Stunned, I was like, "You got to be kidding me!" And, and then when he said, uh, "Okay," he went, we got to the schedule. He's like, "Okay, you're definitely going to do uh, the Seattle game. You're going to do the Bay Bridge series in Seattle, and I definitely want you for Boston, Tampa, and Baltimore." As soon as he said Boston, I started bawling, really, <laughs> just breaking into tears. You know, I'm trying to contain myself because the thing about Fenway Park and broadcasting big league baseball. So I, I finally got it together. I think Billy had come in that time, and he's like, "Congratulations, everything." But uh, yeah, I'll never forget that. I was in Bob Melvin's office when he when Priest told me I was doing those games. You know, one of the things that you and I and anyone who's a AAA is, you know, like the the standard interview is someone gets called up to the major leagues for the first time, and then however long, whether it's two weeks or two months or whatever, and they come back down and you do like the pregame interview. Yeah. And you ask them to, okay, take us through that day. You know, where were you and who told you and who'd yeah. you call first and all that kind of stuff. And now that happens to you. Yeah. 
What? So what did that? Who did you call? Who, oh, who, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was like, like, you're like, are you going to answer the question? You're, you're like, like yes, factual <laughs> statement. <laughs> that is true. I've done that. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. I thought I was having a really no, good moment good. there. This is good, though, because people see that happen sometimes. You know? uh, who did who, you call first? I called, uh, I think I called my brother. I think I called my brother first. I think I'll call my brother and my sister. And then I think I called, called my folks. And told him told him what was going on. Yeah, yeah. The, my brother was my first call, though. Yeah. Was was there a was there any anybody who said something to you, or just any comment that somebody made that that stands out all these years later about just what that moment meant and how proud they were of you, or or how surprised they were, or or just like you know, like whatever. Was, you know, I think my dad, who's not. Uh, who's not one to give a ton of compliments, said to me, he said, remember, you know, I always know what's going on in the game when you're calling it. And that meant the world to me. You know what I mean? That meant the world to me. Like, look, you can do this. Like you're not straying too far away. No. Right? You know, you're, you're, you're sticking to the game. Exactly. Sticking to the game, you know. And, and uh, you know, he that, that meant a lot. And just, uh, you know, the A's were great. I mean, I, I can't say enough. I mean, obviously, Vince Catronio – he he was he couldn't have been nicer to me. He introduced me to everybody. He was so wonderful. I met so many. I made so many contacts. Met so many people because of Vince. Vince introduced me to everybody. Hey, this Johnny's getting a chance here, and I, he could not have been a better human being with the way he was was with me. It was pretty awesome. So when Ken Priest points at the schedule and says Boston, and that's when you lose it. Now, when you actually got to Boston, what was that? Oh like? my, incredible! I I think uh, I know that. Mickey and uh, some of the other people uh, were kind of giving me a hard time because I would the hotel was like about a thirty minute walk to Fenway and I'm like I'm walking I don't care I don't care I'm just gonna find a way I'm getting there I'm I'm on foot I am not gonna take the bus over there I'm gonna absorb every this may be my only chance in the big leagues I'm gonna enjoy Fenway and I'm gonna embrace walking there and experiencing Boston and getting being a part of it so it was uh, it was pretty awesome and then walking in there you're just blown away and then to call a game there is is uh, is really cool, but it was it was it was pretty good experience. It was surreal. Did you flash back to calling crab races while you were at any point in your major league? No, time? I'll tell you another another breakdown I had. I'll tell you about get back to Fenway, but just while I'm on the subject of breaking down, I remember being going to Seattle and going to the Fairmont. That's when I had my experience of all the hotels I've stayed in and all the crab races, all the stuff I've called, all the hog reports and everything I called when I started my career making 900 a month, and I was in the Fairmont. There, I became overwhelmed there because I thought, wow, I'm in the Fairmont Hotel after all the work I put in, and, and it, it's it's paid off, and I get to call Big League Baseball, and that's when I, I broke down, too. So you're in a lot of my breakdowns here, but... but uh, <laughs> Yeah, so that that but Fenway was uh, was really unique, uh, just because uh, to get to call the game there and and Vince told me he's like, hey, you better watch BP from the booth because it's strange the angle the ball, baseballs do different things you know they they look like they're in a little bit further here than they are and he, he kind of trained me kind of helped me to when you're doing play by play it's different at Fenway because the the monster kind of puts perspective off a little bit so he really helped me with that and he, I mean I can't say now Vince Vince really helped me through mm-hmm. that time it was fun. Well, while we're on the subject of you crying, here we go. <laughs> First time that your daughter performed the national anthem yeah. at Rayleigh Field. Uh, she was nine, and uh, I was a mess. As a matter of fact, I, every time I even talk about it, I feel the tears coming up. But, yeah, that was, uh, it, it was incredible. Let's uh, set the stage. How long was she practicing the national anthem before she actually got out there? Oh, like, oh, how many years? Like, Well, like, I think when she, I, I think 
for months and months before she she got out there. I think, and it's it's interesting now because she does it now, and now she's a little bit better. But I think at nine it's easier than when you're twelve. At nine you don't really understand the enormity of it, the crowd and everything, and you go out there and you just do it, and you're not that nervous. But when she got to be eleven or twelve, you you kind of you're a little more worried about what people think, right, at that age. So mm-hmm. she got a little more nervous. And now she's finally settling in, and she can control her nerves when she goes out there and does it. But first time she did it, Josh, I was a mess. I was an absolute mess. She's done a lot now, so I, I'm, I'm moving. Like, was it I'm really, not, like, was it hard to broadcast the top of the first yes, after that? Yes, I didn't even talk. Like, I, I aired the anthem, and there was probably, after she was done, probably about 30 seconds of dead air while I got it together. I was just trying to, trying to just breathe and it was just really really cool experience because i was so proud of her you know you're worried for you 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 have all these worries but you're also so proud of her and and the the thing is about when you're nine you get a break from the fans the fans are pretty right it's just cute that a kid's trying right and and even emmy said it when she did this year at 13 she's like you know what it's not cute anymore i have to do well it's like Mm -hmm. it was cute when i was nine it's not cute now now i have to perform Mm -hmm. i have to do well so she even grasps that you know what was it like when she did it with tim flannery Really cool, really cool, and Tim, you know, uh, Tim was so so great with her, and, and you know, he, you know, he's so he's so great musically that it really it, it worked really well. It was really their voices worked really well together, and uh, that was that was pretty cool. You know, it's also a good experience. Like she had a couple of tough ones too. You know, she did one at Rayleigh Field where she didn't do that great, and I thought that was good too. You know, that's always a good lesson, and and you can't in life you're gonna have. Screw ups, yeah, you know. So I think that was good for her to have that, and she's going to have more of those. I said, listen, that's going to happen again. It's it's okay, you know. Mm-hmm. And she had missed like a note or something. It's not the end of the world. No one no one remembers that. But I think those are good too. So I I, I love you know seeing my daughter perform in Nashville was really cool because she did the anthem with her guitar in Nashville, and that was such a thrill for her because she's always dreamed of you know being in Nashville and playing, and you know she loves music so much to see the way. Uh, and and Jeff Hem was so great, and, and those guys. So it was really cool that uh, it was really cool to see her do that in, in Nashville, Tennessee. I don't know if this is supposed to be kiffled or not, but uh, Chase Darnot, yeah, worked with her and did like a little a beautiful like yes. five minute video. Thing oh, incredible! Chase Darnot is so good with her, and he's been so helpful. And and uh, also Barry Zito, like I sent my I sent her uh, videos to Zito, and when she performed, she did like she did like uh, twenty twenty five songs at this. Pete's Pasta and Grill um, in, a, in, a, in a summer show I didn't go to. Wait, wait. So the River Cats are playing at Nashville, and yeah. she comes, and she's just performing? Uh, she just did the anthem. No, this is a different. Okay. She, she, oh, okay. she, she did a, something in Folsom uh, doing a, a performance. I sent, that to, I sent that to Zito, and Zito was like, wow, that's that. you know, it was good to get his feedback, like positive and things she can work on, too. So that was cool. He's been great. But Chase Darno, man, he, he went out of his way to – he came over to the house. He did a, like a five minute video with her, working with her, and just uh, he's so good with camera presence and things like that. He's a he's his a editing genius. stuff is unbelievable. Oh, he's a genius with his stuff. He really is. He's so musically inclined and so good with people. He's one of the one of the most creative people I've met in baseball. He's he's incredible. So he really helped out. He really helped out Emmy a lot. I'm grateful for that. You want to talk about mess ups? Sure. Yeah, because that's part of it, right? Of course. Like, I mean, like I know that I'll always remember my number one. It was yeah. game two of a doubleheader. I always blame it on the doubleheader. That's yeah. like, that's <laughs> like, that was game two I of a doubleheader. Really, early really wake t- up. Early wake <laughs> up. I was really tired. Yeah. You know, I had to fill all the time in between the games right. of the doubleheader, trying to write my lineups real fast, yeah. trying to eat real fast. And, uh, and we're right here at Isotopes Park. And, uh, and it's top of the first inning. 
and I say, uh, you know, here's the pitch, and it's fouled off out of play. Actually, no, that was a home run. <laughs> <laughs> That's the worst. That's the worst. And so, on the post-game show, on the Southwest Copy Systems post-game yeah. show, the, the engineer's like, hey, you know, I know that you messed this call up. Do you still want to use it? And I was like, yeah, we have to, right? Yeah. Like, if we're going to do, like, the good call of the game, and so normally it's the Miller Lite good call of the game, right. and instead I turned it into the Miller Lite worst call ever. Nice. And, and, and we did it, right? And it was yeah. like, there you go. And that was the Miller Lite worst call ever by me. That's great. I thought it was a foul ball. Nope, it was a home run. That's the greatest. Now, here's the thing. I watched the replay later. It's not like it was just barely fair. Like, like it was in, like, the bull, the bullpen. That's like, great. like I thought it was, like, over the third base dugout. And I just put my head down. I made a little notation. Uh, anyways, today's starting pitcher is uh, six foot two, 200. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That was a home run. <laughs> like, folks, wait a minute. <laughs> Yeah, it's going to happen, man. You do yeah. 140 games, nine innings, you work solo, it's going to happen. It is going to happen. You know, and I had one. It's funny, in Appleton, Wisconsin, in 93, one of my first road games I did, I didn't, I've never seen an outfielder just stand there sarcastically when the ball's out by, like, 150 feet, you know, or whatever, like 100 feet out. And uh, so I saw the fly ball. I said, fly ball to the left, playable, because he was, he was just standing there, and it was it was way out of here. And I said, well, wait a minute. Uh, it's actually a home run. Actually a home run. They, At least it, you got it right. Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I butchered a lot. I mean, we've all butchered so many calls. But I had a, a play a couple years ago on a double play where I fumbled up. Seven, uh, it's a ground ball. It's kind of like that. And I said, that was the worst call in baseball history. You know, it really was. It was terrible. I'll never forget it. I, had him play, I think I had him play it on the highlights just because I, I wanted to hear it again. You know, but. you have to own it. You do. But that's, but that's part of, okay, I got a big nose. I'm owning my nose. Yes. I, I messed up this call. I'm owning this, this call. I'm, right. You know, it's part of owning your life. It is. It is. And it's, I think it also it makes you human, too. Like, I think people actually like it when you – Make a mistake and own up to it. Um, I, with the fans that listen and they're loyal, they're loyal listeners. I think they love it, I, you know. And I, they know I, they've been with me for what this is nineteen years in Sacramento. They've heard a lot of my screw ups, and they stick with you. You know, it's like, uh, you know, obviously I'm not the greatest announcer in the world, but but for the fans that listen every day, they're used to me. That's who, who they have. They're they're stuck with me. They have me, and so it's. Uh, I think they like that when you if you make a mistake and you own it. I think that uh, endears them to you. But I don't want to just focus on, on, on mistakes, though. Like, 19 years, like, there's people who, like, you know, growing up, you listen to Vinny. Like, there's people in Sacramento that have grown up listening to you. Yeah. Like, that's crazy. Yeah, right? it, it's crazy to think, like, and I, I remember it really hit me with Ryan Sweeney. Uh, Ryan Sweeney grew up in Cedar Rapids, and he, he told me, like, he, he told me that he listened to me when he was eight or nine years old. Really? Yes, and that was really, really cool. And also, a couple I married, uh, Pete and Elise Iliff, Pete listened to me when he was like seven or eight, you know? So really? to hear that is like really cool to think that you, you know, I, here I am still calling games, and now it's passed along generation to generation. The longer you're with a, with a team, the more that's passed along, right? So you guys that listen to you at six are now now have families of their own, right? Right. Some of them. So D- compare prepping for a baseball broadcast and prepping to be the what's it called the official of a wedding? What's what's the officiant? Uh, you know, it's 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 a different prep, you know, because baseball there's all this information and you want to figure out what what you what you want to talk about and everything. Whereas it's it's more scripted. A wedding's more scripted, but you also want to have some spontaneity um, with the wedding as well. So it's a different kind of prep. They're they're both. I mean, the the, the wedding things I think more nerve wracking because it, it's 
it's their day, although I don't want to underestimate how important a broadcast is, but there, you have 140 of them, and you're going to screw up and have it. But I don't know. I always think with the wedding, I put a lot of pressure on myself to do well because it's it's their day, you know, and you don't want to don't want to have a, a screw up there, you know. So it's it's intense. It, it's it's pretty intense when you're about to do a wedding, and, and but I try not to. I, I want to be loose too. So it's it is it, it's a different kind of prep. I want to be be ready. I have my basic script I go with, but I also if they want you know, more religion in it or no religion or whatever, I, you, you kind of make the adjustment according to them. What's the mer- most nervous you've ever been for a public speaking, whether it's a broadcast or a wedding or um, you're, 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 you're at an auction or you're at a, you're at a banquet? The like- most nervous I've ever been was, was Wednesday, January 24th, 2001. And the reason I say that, it was because I was doing a uh, – I was emceeing a breakfast at Champions Banquet with Dusty Baker and Jerry Manuel. Ooh. And I didn't sleep the night before because I was so nervous, and I absolutely melted down. It was it was the worst public speak. I tell this to kids when they talk about public speaking. When I'm talking to kids about the, the business, I said, no matter what you do, always know that you can never screw up worse than I did on January twenty fourth. What did you do wrong? I forgot to introduce uh, our owners. I uh, I tried to tell jokes uh, when I met Dusty Baker. I got crickets from every I mean there was no there I couldn't have been worse I could not have been it was so bad that our the late owner Art Savage who I loved he, he said to me he's like he said hey good job and I said Art thanks you're lying I, I it was not a good job and that's okay but he was still encouraging but it was 200 season ticket holders and I had crickets on everything I said I would say uh I, I remember saying hey don't forget to get your season tickets 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 that was in my head and everybody was just like looking at me like what is wrong with this guy like it was, it was. I was. It was my first experience with the Sacramento uh, uh, people. Mm-hmm. It was my first, my first talk, and my heart was pounding. The, the the mic was shaking. It was, and the papers were shaking. It was embarrassing. It what was, did you learn from that? Uh, get your rest. Be prepared, and and just. I I think I got a little less nervous after that public speaking. But I still was pretty nervous. I'm better now, public speaking. Uh, but for a while there, I really struggled. Even because we're on the radio, people don't see us. It's different. It's when you, totally different. Yeah. So when you have a public speaking event like that, even my my daughter knows. She goes, "Well, at least it wasn't worse than one twenty four oh one, right?" Like she knows. She knows that your day. own daughter still mocks you. Yeah, she of course she does. She's thirteen. <laughs> She always mocks me. Yeah, but but one twenty four oh one. I'll never I'll never forget it. It was it was it was. I, I actually I think I might have told Dusty about it a couple of years ago. I said I don't know if you remember this. I don't think he remembered. But did it, he? No. Okay, well, that's good. They don't. Yeah, but but it was. He's been to a million. Bands. Yeah, he has. Someone but, was worse than you. But no, I, no, no. <laughs> I don't. It was it was miserable. It was. I'll never forget it. it. Was it was, it was the worst. Okay, I don't want to end it on that. Like, give me like a positive thing. Give me, give me a really good wedding where you just felt like, oh, I just felt the love and the joy, and you felt like, okay, I, I didn't mess up their day. That I'm. You know what? You know what wedding I really enjoyed doing? I did Chris Heston's wedding, and I really enjoyed that in Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really the, there was a lot of love there. I mean, all the weddings are a lot of love. I enjoyed also um, uh, Dana and Corey Dolish's wedding in Portland. I really that was that that wedding was great too. But all of them are different. All of them, it sounds cliche to say all of them are good in their own right. They really are because it's every every. Uh, Union is different, right? Yeah. So every marriage is different. So uh, every everything had its positives. I'm not trying to be Pollyanna about everything. I've only had one divorce, though. I've had 11, 11 weddings. I'm 10 for 11. The, the 11 weddings I've done, only one divorce. That's good. It's not bad. That's better, a good better, ratio. Better than the national average. 
<laughs> right. A little bit better. Right. Just a little bit. Just a tad. Yeah. 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 So, how, do, how do you become uh, official in order to, to officiate a wedding? Well, you can get it online. You can get it online. How long did it take you? It took me about eight minutes. It's not about that. It's not about that. So, so yeah. Uh, you know, listen, am I, am I an official minister? I mean, that, that's questionable. But, uh, but no, I'm, but I definitely am, am official. And I, I enjoy doing them. I really do. I'm enjoying them more and more the more I do it. I really like it. This has been a good flap. Yeah, it's been fun. Was this a grind? Not at all. If this was grindy, would you have told me? Yes. It wasn't grindy at all, honestly. It was great. Okay. It was fun. Did you have a good time? I had a blast. Good. Yes. Good. I, I, how I, long I, do we go? How long do we go? We're at about an hour 16 right now. Nice. Yeah. Time flies it when you're does, flapping. man. Great flap. You know, I, so did it live up to the intro? I guess it's for the audience to live up to the introduction. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see if it I'm did. I'm trying we'll to see. capture what makes you, you. Yeah. I think if you're, I think it's easier when you're around somebody because I think it's like when, oh, who knows? People could, you don't really get uh, the full impression unless you're around somebody. But I think, uh, I think you brought a lot of good things out of me, so I appreciate it. It was fun. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us. Um, and thanks for the range today. The range got me, got me a new place. We're trying to get, go to new places every city we go to, right? At least one place. Right. You can't go to the same place every meal, right? Like you did in Portland. I did four straight. I mixed it up, but that was only for like. Day games after. I, I, I went to Mother's a lot toward the end. I was going there every time. Yeah. That's Johnny Doskow, and this was Life Around the Seams.